Cod Moth. Orale, today we bask in the light of mustachioed greatness. Watcha! The legendary Edward James Obos has come an awfully long way since his baseball days and his youth back in East L.A. to his musical career, which I didn't even know as a rock singer, and then to his first uncredited acting role as Junkie in Bathroom in 1974's Black Fist, which will probably be on the podcast at some point. Um, you know, it looks like there's plenty of good mustaches in that one. This proud Chicano has been in my life since I can remember being born in the mid 80s. And I know I missed a lot of good stuff and I'm catching up. I actually didn't really know Edward James almost from Miami Vice. I knew him from Stand and Deliver, uh, which I believe was a late 80s movie. And, you know, I don't know, no pinche caculas, you know, all that good stuff. I loved him. But now that I'm catching up on Miami Vice and then after seeing him in Zoot Suit, I'm realizing that Edward James almost was one sexy son of a bitch. <laughs> There's a scene in the first season of Miami Vice where he's in a black Speedo taking a swim in the Atlantic Ocean where he meets this gorgeous Thai woman. Holy shit, this guy's a piece. Anyway, enough joking around. We got a historically significant film to discuss on today's show, which honestly makes me question why it's being discussed on the podcast. But I think it's important. I think it's good. I'm a Chicano. I think it's good to talk about it. And I have a guest that's going to be really awesome at going back and forth and discussing this film. But you know what? I think I'm going to have a good time. Now play that shit theme song. It's the Mustachio Podcast, yo. We're ready for the show. We'll watch moves, we'll make some jokes, and then we'll all go home. Navigating the legendary hairy upper lips. It's the Mustachio Podcast, yo. All right. Welcome back. This is the Mustachio Podcastio, and I am your host, Daniel Segura. And today, I have the great, and he, he is a he is now a Podcastio All Star. You know, a, a Podcastioso, as I like to call them. Uh, his name is Doctor Faustus. Welcome to the show, Faustus. Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Pretty good, man. I'm so glad to be hearing your voice as uh, on. Uh, we are recording this on uh, New Year's New Year's Day, and I feel like this is a pretty dope way to kick off the year. Oh yeah, yeah. This I mean, movie was a pretty dope way to kick off the year. I, I mean, <laughs> I feel you. It was amazing. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to think about how we picked this. It was a while back. I, I think I, I was looking at. We were, I wanted to do Edward we, James. Ol yeah, Edward James Olmos. I think what I recall you're saying is we, we really have to do Edward James Olmos because yeah. uh, he's a, he's like a he's a great mustache basically. Oh yeah. Uh, and but what to do because you know a lot of the movies are kind of complicated, and you know but we you know, he said I've never done Zoot Suit. Why don't we try that? I said, sure, why not? You know that's like a that's a deep subject. Uh, and I, I remember you said something very touching, actually, in the, in the course of that conversation, which was that Ed, you seeing Edward James almost on the big screen when you were growing up meant a great deal to you. Um, and maybe, maybe just to kick off a little bit, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about about that. Yeah, I know. Um, it was a big deal for sure. I, I think me and my my sister Anna choose. You know, I have three other siblings, but the the two I have two old old older ones, and they kind of had their life. 
and then I was I was always hanging out with my sister Anna, who's only two years older than me. Mm-hmm. So we watched a lot of these Edward James Olmos movies uh, together, and we just had a really good time. It was um, interesting to see. We grew up on TV that we didn't see a lot of kids that looked like us, or sounded like us, or sounded like our friends, or had um, you know neighborhoods that they lived in that were like ours. And so when we started seeing those movies like Stand and Deliver and a lot of the, the films that he made over the years, it, it was a big deal. Um, he he also kind of had a way of speaking that was very familiar to us, even though he was from East L.A. and we were from San Antonio, Texas. Um, there's just a similar weird connection. Um, now that I live here in L.A., I, I can see it as well. Uh, it's interesting how these two cities from the pretty good distance away from each other have very uh similar uh uh similar things that they can relate to i would say that in texas you get a little bit more of that tex-mex and dahano influence but it is it was really special for us to see him on the big screen it was just something that gave us a uh, honestly the idea of oh, oh man we could maybe even be in movies <laughs> right right sure <laughs> so it was really cool man uh, yeah this means a lot to be able to cover this movie which i'd never seen i'd never seen zoot suit mm-hmm. well uh how do you want to go how do you want to go about it you suggested that we might not want to do quite the same breakdown that we typically are typically done on the mustachio podcastio I mean, I wanna... but do you want yeah. shall we give like a quick just like a quick sense of what the, the movie's about or what it's reflecting um, historically. Um, because some yeah. people, so many people will recognize it, some will not. And if you'd like, I'll give it a pop. Um, the movie actually begins with like a, a caption in both English and Spanish saying that it's based on a real incident. Uh, and that's true. Uh, it's based on real incidents that happened in 1942 and 1943, uh, where there was a, an incident called the Sleepy Lagoon Murder. And what happened in this instance was there were a, it was basically a group of young people uh, who in the press were identified as the quote 38th Street Gang, um, but who are mostly, they're mostly Chicanos, but not exclusively, um, you know, got into some sort of a, a big fight with another group of young people near a place called Sleepy Lagoon. Uh, which was a place that a lot of a lot of Chicanos would hang out uh, because there wasn't really much else for them, many other places for them to go. Exactly. <clears throat> then, after the time of the fight, the Los Angeles Police Department found a badly badly injured young man named Jose Diaz, um, whom they they picked up. They took him to the hospital. He died at the hospital. Someone had obviously beaten him up very badly, and so the police arrested. Uh, the a bunch of members of this alleged 38th Street gang. Uh, it's not really clear that they were a gang. Uh, it seems that, for example, one of the historians, Eduardo uh, Obregón Pagán, who uh, has written about a book, a whole book about the Sleepy Lagoon incident, says he thinks that they were really more just like an affinity group, that they were just kids who hung out together because they liked each other. Oh, yeah, uh, classic. And, but, you know, that there's the, the yellow press, and there's the LAPD, and before you know it, they're a gang, and before you know it, 17 of them are arrested and put on a mass trial. Uh, possibly one of the worst bad travesties of justice in okay. the California system. I mean, it was appalling. You have 17 people on trial at once. Uh, there are six defense attorneys. There's a judge who's very unsympathetic. Um, in the course of the trial, the, the people in the course of the trial were like kept in jail for three months. They weren't allowed to cut their hair. They weren't allowed to get new clothes. 
Uh, so, of course, they look awful when they get put on the stand in front of an all-white jury. Uh, the judge allowed testimony from an L.A. Uh, Sheriff's Department officer who testified that because they were descended from Aztecs, that they were in, intrinsically characterized by bloodlust. Um, yep. And that's real testimony, by the way. They really allowed him. They yeah, were, and then in the movie, they consider him an expert witness. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, he was considered an expert witness. Yeah, and in fact, that's so actually shown. That's, that incident in the movie actually happened in real life. Yeah. A lot of the things that are really shocking in the movie happened it's in real life. It's through there big time, yes. The, these, these young men are, a bunch of them are convicted, uh, including one whose name was uh, Henry Levis, uh, who becomes like the model for the main protagonist of the movie. Uh, a lot of people in Los Angeles, sort of among the progressive community, are outraged. They form a committee called the Sleepy Lidvoon Defense Committee, uh, and eventually manage to get, after two years, these, these young men spend like two years almost in San Quentin, uh, they get the conviction reversed and they are freed. And one of the most important people on that defense committee, uh, a woman named Alice, um, Alice Greenfield, who's the battle for the character of Alice McGrath, um, you know, is, was sort of central in getting them out. Uh, and we'll see her. She's played by Tyne Daly in this movie, or her character yeah. is. Maybe the um, best performance. Um, it's a, well, Tyne Daly is a, is a spectacular actress. I mean, she's yeah. a stage performer. Um, yeah. you know, she's a, she's why, a, why she shined in this sort of uh, style of film. <laughs> right, because the film has an unusual structure, right? It's staged as, <laughs> it's staged as a stage play people are watching. And we can talk about maybe why that, why that very unusual kind of filming choice was made. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Tyne Daly is a Tony Award winner, so she's obviously in the right place for that sort of thing. Uh, I should note, by the way, that Alice McGrath lived a very long time, um, she until 2009, so she, I think, is the longest surviving uh, protagonist in the real-life story. And you, if you look her up on YouTube, you can actually find her interviewed uh, when she's about 80 years old. Wow. Uh, and she's still, she's still, at that time, she's like a really active, uh, you know, sort of social justice person. Uh, you know, all her life she was that. Um, and it, so, in fact... The guy who wrote the, the, the play on which uh, Zoot Suit is based said she's probably one of the heroes of 20th century Los Angeles. Now, as this is going on, there's also something, there's also an event called the Zoot Suit Riot. Uh, this takes place in 1943, in, in August, early August of 1943. Now, um, I don't know how many members, people listening to this know what a Zoot Suit was. Um, it, was a, it was an unusual kind of fashion, uh, and in its full flowering and what it would consist of would be a man, a very long men's jacket uh with exaggerated shoulder padding it would fall almost to the knees in most cases uh it would be very loose around the chest so uh you know they flowed to a certain extent these are sometimes called drapes uh by yeah, people who wear base. them yeah. and then you have a very high-waisted pants uh, you know, they would come up like six or seven inches probably above where you would normally expect a men's belt line to be. These would flow out at the knees. They'd sort of billow out. Then they'd come back down at the ankles and be with very tight cuffs. Uh, it must have been kind of hard to put on, I would have thought. But, you know, it was a style. You'd often be worn with like a pork pie hat, um, which we see in this movie a lot. And then uh, the, the, the biggest accessory would be a very long watch chain. Uh, that would flow down one side and back up. Uh, and 
So this was an extravagant style. It began probably among African Americans in places like New York City. Uh, Cab Calloway, the, the singer, was probably the first major celebrity to wear one uh, as part of his performances. And in the early 40s, Malcolm X, of all people, records in his autobiography buying one in Boston because uh, it made him it made him it made him feel like an urban person right and he had come from like a small town in Michigan so he wanted yeah. to feel uh, different the style then crosses the um, crosses the continent it gets picked up by young Chicano men uh, many of whom might be identified as pachucos and then I, you might want to think about how to use that term it's not wasn't familiar to me before working through this movie um, yeah. And it becomes their kind of urban style. Uh, it's also, it's not worn, it is not exclusively worn by Chicanos. There are also Filipino, young Filipino men often wore it. Um, and so did young African-American men in Los Angeles. It was a kind of slightly oppositional, slightly flamboyant style. Um, and it got them in trouble, in part because it was identified with, you know, there was a, it was identified with all oh, these these young Mexicans. They're they're all a bunch of criminals, uh, and this is their uniform. Uh, and it became more and more of a problem as the the first world, second world war <clears throat> wore on in Los Angeles, because Los Angeles at that time was of course heavily overcrowded. Yeah. Uh, it was very hard to get housing. Uh, it was very hard to find places to go because the city was filled with all kinds of people from different parts of the country who had come in to do war work, as well as people who were being trained at various military installations uh, in Southern California. Yeah, I think even Edward James almost mentioned that growing up in East <clears throat> LA, he actually said that his neighborhood wasn't so much of a melting pot. It was uh, more like a, a salad where everybody kind of kept their own their own uh, heritage, their own culture, but they were all staying within the same area. So yeah, LA was just boistering. And I will say before um, we get any further, uh, just in case we have listeners in El Paso, uh, Pachuco uh, is known to have been or originated in El Paso, Texas, mm -hmm. and the Pachuco lifestyle, the the the. I, I think it was because the city of El Paso was tip typically referred to as Chuco Town or El Chuco, and people migrating from LA to El Paso would say they were going. By el, by, el, uh, by el Chuco, and eventually it became started to come into as a uh, Pachucos, and it spread from there. I, I think a lot, of, probably a lot of the language too. Um, right, uh, they have Calo. This, this Calo, yes, this 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 argo that they speak in, um, which is, has a Spanish grammar, but a very um, a very complex vocabulary, which frustrated me when I was attempting to translate it because these words aren't in any dictionary. Um, or, I mean, you know, maybe they are, they are, but it's like written by they linguists something, or something. Yep. Yeah, they mean something completely different a lot of times. Yep. So, you know, it, it's it's tricky following following it. I, I did eventually find someone uh, put together a, a glossary um, of all the language and expressions that they could find in Zoot Suit, uh, which you can probably also find online if, if, if you watch this movie and you're sometimes curious about what these characters are saying to one another, uh, or at least in the opinion of the person who put the glossary together. Uh, exactly. And a lot of that actually stuck around. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up saying a lot of those words. Well, good. Uh, some of them are gone. Um, and so I had, I had did look at some of the, I was like, oh, I wonder what else, like, what are some of the other words from the forties and fifties that they were saying? And some of them did not make it to my time, but I grew up saying, uh, tons of those words. And I still say some of them 
from time to time. I just had no idea that it went that far back um, to the Pachuco era. I thought it was something that came from just the streets and and the living in Texas and and all those things. Um, the Chicano style that was in Texas, I had no idea it went that far back. So that was kind of amazing to learn that. Um, I'm ashamed I didn't know that, but I did learn. <laughs> well. <laughs> You know, no one is born knowing things, and you have to learn <laughs> them somewhere, sometime, right? So, yeah, um, and you know, this is this is certainly a, it was a huge learning experience for me. To the suit riots, though, these happened basically. They were there were very bad relations between sailors, essentially, and other military personnel and local Chicanos, basically because the people who were in Los Angeles at the time had a certain sense of neighborhoods being their neighborhoods, right? This is where we live. This club is where we go. This restaurant is a place where we eat, this bar or something. And then in come these sailors, um, who are a lot of them are being trained at Chavez regime uh, in, to become radio men, to go off and fight on ships in the Pacific. They've got money, uh, and they're wandering around Los Angeles looking to have a good time. Uh, and because they are, you know, because they're from everywhere but Los Angeles, they have no sense of, you know, the local customs or, you know, the local dignities. And because they're, because they're mostly white, they basically assume that everything belongs to them. Mm -hmm. And this brings them into conflict with local people. Uh, and then, of course, these things escalate and then they turn into rumors about how these pachucos did some terrible thing or they raped somebody some sailor's girlfriend, and before they know it, they, the, with the help of the yellow press, uh, that there's a reference to them, a number of references to them in the movie. In fact, they're even incarnated. Uh, yes. you, get, um, you get a very toxic atmosphere that eventually breaks down into sailors arming themselves and then rampaging around Los Angeles, uh, beating up young Chicano men, especially ones that they can find wearing zoot suits and tearing the zoot suits off. Yes, which is the most, it's just uh, such a degrading thing to have that done publicly. And that's in addition to getting your ass kicked and, and being surrounded by all these guys and and then being stripped uh, to either your chones or completely naked. And, mm -hmm. and I think uh, it was uh, definitely, obviously, the Pachuco style, the Pachuco way was a lot about machismo. And which uh, arguably that's basically, you know, whatever James almost is as El Pachuco. He's that machismo mentality that sort mm -hmm. of pollutes a lot of uh, Chicano brains and a lot of other uh, male brains out there. And you battle with it your whole life. And um, when, when, you're, when you're left like that in the street, I can't imagine what, what those uh, kids, a lot of them were kids, were going yeah. through. Um, it's just horrible. So, you know, this is something and it's like, of course, you know, no, no military personnel were ever arrested uh, for this. Uh, a lot of Chicanos were, uh, because I guess they were seen as having somehow provoked the riot. The L.A. City Council uh, passed a law outlawing the zoot suit. Um, yeah, weird reasoning, too. It was something like fabric was needing to go down because they needed it to, to help with the war and the fact that these Chicanos and, and other Pachucos from all different races were wearing these suits. It was mm. almost an anti-American, un-American thing to do to wear all that fabric. Um, that, that's a little less, time. I think that's a little less strange than maybe imagined because this is a time of very strict rationing. Yes. Um, 
and everything was essentially rationed. I mean, you couldn't buy, you could only buy like one suit a year if you were just an ordinary person. Uh, and that suit would come without cuffs. Uh, it would come without pleats. Uh, and it would come without a vest. The reasoning being that these are these were requirements imposed by the War Production Board for the conservation of textiles. And ironically, most of the people picking that cotton were probably brown. Yep. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of, it's kind of like, hey, if we're the one picking it, let us just wear as much as we want. <laughs> sure, but you know that's not how they reasoned at <laughs> the War the Production Board. I mean, it really was. I mean, it, I mean, everything was. But again, everything was rationed. Like you couldn't get anything made of metal. You could not buy a new car. Uh, you could not buy a new washing machine. You could not buy a new refrigerator. Um, you could not buy a new set of tires for your car, even if you had one. Exactly. Uh, so you know Crazy. the idea that everything is rationed may, may not be quite as you know, it may not be quite as much of a you know as a rationalization as one might think, and it may have the fact that you had these uh, young men who were kind of extravagantly dressed at a time when people felt like they were. You know, having to scrape by may have contributed some to the resentment that people felt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and a lot of it comes down to you know they were using, and I think that's the thing. You know, with a with a lot of inner city kids, you know, there's something I noticed in this movie, and it's the fact that all these all these kids come from pretty low income families. You know, just blue collar families, just trying to to kind of make it. But they have these pretty extravagant cars, and a lot of the times, this is because they're working on it, working on it themselves. They have friends of the family or, or family members that work in auto, and they can help them build, work on their cars DIY style. They don't need to go to some pet boys or something like that. And the same is for their fabrics and their clothes. They have abuelitas. They have, you know, they, they have ads that can put that together and, and help them uh, create these zoot suits. So it's not like they're needing to go to J.C. Penney or Sears, and I mm-hmm. think that's what probably bothered them even more is the fact that they're putting these this stuff together. Um, it's just in this in this way where it's almost I think a lot of uh, white America at the time felt like that was a big middle finger that you're not following suit to what we're trying to do here, mm-hmm. and you're sticking out like you said and flaunting yourself, and this is a time for to keep our heads down and focused on on uh, fighting this war. And uh, and you know you, you can see both sides, but I think a big part of it is, um, so I think in, in part of instilling pride even during a, during wartime is is feeling good about yourself. I mean, I think we all have experienced obviously the 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 year we had in 2020 and what we're still having to this day are not as bad as it, the, I could imagine in the 40s during World War Two, but you still it is a battle to feel good about yourself uh, during a time like this. And maybe it's those zoot suits added something to them, something to the uh, to their pride, something to their confidence, um, and plus their kids, and that it's just something that kids do. They're constantly putting the middle finger toward the man, quote unquote. But and also people wanted to go out and have a good time. Yeah, because that was about all you could do, right? I mean, you couldn't have a really good time through consumption, but you could go dancing. Oh yeah, right. I and mean, people actually had people had, and they had probably more money than they usually had before because of the availability of war work yeah exactly i mean and then plus man the and i will say the music and i and i have said this before i don't know if people that have listened to me on the bin i can't remember which grindman episode it was it was yours it was uh, a lot i had mentioned that musicals are not really my thing i just it's just i and i'm a musician at heart i've played music since i was a kid I love music, but something about the blending of it into a narrative has always um, 
kind of rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. I'm not sure why, but I think it, you know, for the most part, I won't say completely, but I think for the most part, the music here really, 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 really works. And I absolutely love the mixture of jazz, Latin jazz, swing. It's mm -hmm. just all good stuff. Sure. There was such good music back then. It's just amazing. Yeah, and people dressed better. It's just yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time. What, what was really what's become of us as a country? <laughs> I say it was a good time, but really things were really rough. But when it came to to having a pachanga, you know, going out there and dancing with your friends and having a good time, mm -hmm. they knew how to have a good time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, the music is great, and the music. Um, are you, are you thinking of is it Lalo Guerrero? Yes, Lalo. Yeah, yes. Lalo Guerrero did an amazing job putting all this together. And I, I do very much plan on getting the soundtrack on vinyl. I, I, there's a mint condition one on eBay. It's like 60 bucks. So I'm going to need to wait for a payday to budget for that after the holidays. So we'll see if it's still around. <laughs> Start a Kickstarter or something. <laughs> yeah. It's important, important, for, important for my research. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Although um, you know who else contributed to the music here is actually Daniel Reina, uh, who um, sorry, not Daniel Reina. Um, oh yeah, go oh, yeah. Uh, why why did Daniel Valdez, uh, who's the brother of the guy of Luis Valdez, the of writer, Luis, yeah, and who also plays the the lead character um, to the extent that you know his, you know we don't consider Edgar James almost as Pachuco the lead character, um, but so these guys are incredibly versatile you know yeah, man. these guys took it they kind of uh they you know uh, folded their sleeves up and got some shit done back in the day like mm -hmm. into this day um but i believe luis valdez was also a uh, activist as well right well i mean uh, the theater and the activism go together right yeah because he perfect. he and daniel in the 1960s founded uh, the the teatro campesino yes which was which is i guess didactic theater associated with the united farm workers right yep yeah, it just all kind of comes together, telling those stories and telling them in a way that people can relate to. And I think, I think um, you know, we were talking a little bit about the the approach that they put this film together with. I think the reason he may have uh, uh, focused in on the uh, theater style um, that he did go with, like on stage style, I think it's because that was the birth of this. That's that's where it's deeply rooted, and that's where he was initially able to get this message out to a whole bunch of people. So. Mm -hmm. It does make sense for him to lean on it. That's what he does best. Um, you know, part of me kind of wishes they went a more uh, theatrical, like um, like actual camera on site uh, approach to it, not so much on a stage. But at the same time, there are moments where it re it is really good, but then there's moments where I feel like you lose some of the effect that you would have had if you were in the theater watching it from your seat as opposed to having a camera like zoomed in on the on what they're trying to to have like there's just some elements that don't translate as well i guess when you're shooting a film and you're sitting in your the the difference between sitting in your seat and watching it on the stage or like seeing it in done in this kind mm -hmm. of way that they did it you know it's hard to explain but that's I'm not well, an expert, obviously. <laughs> do you think it makes sense to dive in and just give a sort of, maybe not a full breakdown, but a sense of how this this, this, this movie proceeds? Yeah, I mean, basically, we are with, you know, we're this is, even though El Pachuco, which is played by Edward James Olmos, who, who just knocks this part out the, he just knocks it out the park, um, we're basically following Henry Reyna, who 
we don't get to see this developed, but is basically a pretty legendary character in his neighborhood, in his in his hoodia. He's really well known. He's got a big name. He's a handsome guy. He he has some of the best looking zoot suits. So he's got a lot of respect. He basically is the leader of this friendship crew gang, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we're following his journey from living this popular life of being the leader of this group to getting kind of roped in to the the to getting arrested with all these guys, getting put in prison, and then the battle to get out of there. And he's battling really himself the entire movie, and kind it's of, everyone around kind of him. literally. Let's yeah. tell people about the relationship between. Because it's it's very unusual the relationship between Henry and El Pachuco. Oh yeah, that I think that's probably the reason this uh, this play was as renowned as it was. The the way they focus in on that relationship is amazing. It's El Pachuco is almost a mixture of your you know how they always have the cliche of you have your the little angel on your shoulder and you have the little devil. Pachuco is kind of a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Maybe leaning toward the the darker side of his conscience, the machismo, as I mentioned earlier, that side of "Hey, man, you're a pachuco, like you're re- you're supposed to represent. You're not going to let these people rock all over you." It's that little that little voice in the back of your head personified. And the other side, as I'm watching the as I watched the rest of the movie, as I got toward the end, I was like, it's also kind of like the Chicano. It's a wonderful life. As I, as well. <laughs> He's kind of like a little. Cabron Clarence, you know, like he's a mm-hmm. little, you know, he he's tricky, and he has a way of getting um, Henry to learn things without actually t- saying specifically to him. Like he needs to experience the struggle to understand what uh, El Pachuco is trying to show him. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is a very weird love hate relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. Complicated as hell because you start thinking. Because he has literal conversations with his cat, so at the same time you're like, man, is Henry just super high? Like, is he he's seeing this guy? It's, El, he... it's El Pachuco who's always smoking. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's the high one. <laughs> and Edward James Olmos apparently studied Kabuki um, to help influence this character, and when you watch it, he's doing a lot of these over-the-top hand gestures like he's kind of dancing slash directing a musical mm-hmm. group or a, an orchestra and it it's captivating it is captivating i can mm-hmm. see why he rocked it but he's also he's he's also like at the at the core of the musical numbers like edward edward james, edward james almost has the songs the first thing that we see is a club and a dance scene mm-hmm. right uh yeah. and he has he also has his own group of backup singers as it were his uh, a, a, a pachuca trio yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, close harmony women singers uh, to join in the songs that he performs about you know about dance and so forth. Um, yes, he can also stop time um, in a way where he can in the in the in the movie itself he has the ability to snap. His snapping is big; it either starts something up or it mm-hmm. stops something, and he will stop time to give a message to either Henry or whoever the hell's around, but usually Henry, and he lets him know different things or. He says messages to him like don't do something like for instance there's a moment where there's a very pivotal part in the movie where Henry's fighting a rival gang uh, his name's Rafa mm-hmm. and he's part of the Downey gang and this is when they're already kind of uh, he's already in in the in the holding uh, waiting for trial 
and they're looking i think they're talking back to what happened and what 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 was the pivotal moment that night that may have led them to getting arrested and one was this big fight he had with the with the rival gang uh from the the downy gang mm -hmm. and they're fighting they're going back and forth they bring out their their switchblades and there's a moment where henry has an opportunity to finish this guy and and basically waste him and Pachuco stops it and says something like hey man like what do you want do you want two more dead mexicans or do you want to to show basically show mercy so that's why i was saying there's times where he's not always that voice that evil voice to do horrible things sometimes he's the voice of reason mm -hmm. and he was a baby to reason with henry to like hey cool your shit like that's not the pachuco way you don't go killing your own people and he let him live but by him letting him live it kind of ended up <laughs> getting a bit more shit but maybe he wouldn't have gotten away with wasting this guy out in the open with a bunch of people around so but yeah it is uh, interesting um his influence on on henry throughout the movie it, he's like almost it really is a he's a friend sometimes and sometimes he's a, he's a mental adversary like almost making him go insane i mean there are, there are a couple of aspects here one i guess is sort of he's a projection of an alternative form of consciousness for Henry, right? Yeah. Uh, and Henry, if you think about it, you know, if you were just sort of inside his world and walking around and knew him, he would seem like kind of like a fairly level guy. Like he's joining, he's going to join the, he's about to join the U.S. Navy and fight for, you know, what he sees as his country. Yeah. Uh, and he, he gets he gets razzed by El Pachuco for doing for that proposal. Um, yes, he does. And you know, but he's basically he's basically solid. He gets along well with a lot of people. Uh, the people around him is this sort of interesting kind of multi ethnic group, even though many of them identify as Pachucos, um, like even the Oki. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, in, in my hood, they always call them Weritos. Yep. <laughs> there we go. I mean, the thing is, like, he he's sort of. Henry is almost like he's almost respectability politics, right? And El Pachuco is a different is something completely something quite different. You know, he's sort of more like you know, stand up for yourself. Don't don't insist that you know you have to conform to everything the society wants of you. Um, yeah, exactly. show some pride. Um, so there's there's always that aspect that there's that immediate political aspect, and then there's an over the top theory. Uh, which I encountered about Ooh, El Pachuco. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I think that actually uh, it's, you know, to some extent, Luis, Val uh, sorry, Luis Valdez may have actually confirmed this in an interview, although I haven't been able to find it. And this is the idea that El Pachuco is actually a kind of, is actually a manifestation, not of the good angel or the bad angel, but of an Aztec deity, um, Tizcatlipoca, who is a god of sorcery and prophecy. Oh, okay. And that, you know, he is, you know, he's, there's a bit of, there's a bit of trickster element. He, and reasons for thinking of this is he has these red and black colored zoot suit, which are apparently this, this God's colors. Uh, and you notice that his Pachuca trio are also all clad in red. Um, uh, he has the ability to basically reorder time and cut time, which is a divine ability. Yes. Uh, and then... He, you know, he is basically, he represents uh, a kind of sacrificial impulse, which uh, we see both in Henry, you know, he, does, he doesn't talk to the cops because he doesn't want to get his brother in trouble for, this, for whatever happened at Sleepy Lagoon. Um, he's willing to sacrifice himself for his country in the sense of joining the Navy. Um, and there's, 
also the scene that late in the late in the movie, in the, yes. in the movie, where you know you have like this highly stylized representation of the Zoot Suit riots that occur and break the fourth wall in this theater, uh, where the the play or whatever it is is taking place. Uh, there's a scene where he is stripped, left on the stage, uh, and then Daniel, who may be hallucinating all this because he's he's experiencing it within the confines of being in solitary confinement in San Quentin, looks down, sees his younger brother, who's now lying naked on the stage, uh, weeping in, in utter shame and humiliation because he's been stripped of his zoot suit mm-hmm. in the riot. It's a rough one. Then he looks down again. This is a tough scene. Then he looks down again, and it's El Pachuco, and El Pachuco rises. Talk, talk about a tall drink of water, Edgar Jean. He's wearing just a loincloth, um, <laughs> and he fades backwards into the into the, the red light of the stage, disappearing. Yes, uh, and, and, and there's native, um, definitely like a native type music playing uh, mm-hmm. during the scene. He's just yeah, he just has that loincloth, and he's he just slowly drifts back into the darkness and the shadows. There's also like another detail that somebody noted for us, which is that Tezcatlipoca, in addition to having these human sacrifices. There were processions in Aztec times to him, uh, and the processors carried, uh, they would play a flute, carry flowers, and something called a smoking tube. Mm. And you notice in the background of the stage set where he, where uh, El Pachuco stands above the dance floor in the club, what is the most prominent neon design? It is a flower. Yes. And as for smoking tube, well, you know, I guess I'll leave that to you. You're figuring out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it is amazing. The the that's a really cool theory. I like yeah. that theory. That makes some sense because there is um, and you know maybe Luis was just trying to work in some of the uh, uh, some of the roots and um, some so, some of that influence into the movie. But that is a theory because. It is weird because he does bob and weave. He's not always... There are some moments where he's not necessarily with Henry. There's some moments where he's representing Rudy, which is Henry's brother. Um, and who he did a, a fantastic job. Um, is it Blan, Blana? Blanya? I'm trying to remember his name. I'm not sure if it's Robert Blanya. Who, the actor who played Rudy? Who plays Rudy, yeah. He does a great job as well. I'm, I'm, um, looking, I'm looking it up. It is... Because he's that guy you've seen in a bunch of stuff. <laughs> but a, lot, a lot of characters. Yes. A lot of character. He's a character actor. He's been on tons of TV shows. Uh, from what I could... Tony, Pl- Tony Plana. Ah, yeah, okay. I think he's Cuban. Uh, Tony Plana. And he's a, has a huge reputation here in L.A. And I think even was a, an a, a acting instructor for a long, long time here. And started a school and earned awards. Like, this guy is, has done a lot for uh, for acting for uh, Latinos here in LA. So yeah, so he did a fantastic job as Rudy. And Rudy is almost kind of the antithesis uh, in a way of, of Henry in the sense of he's the he's the, the brother that's trying to be cool like Henry is, but unfortunately just isn't. He drinks too much. He stupors around. He's quite not as, he's not quite as sharp upstairs. He's more of a jokester. And there's even a part where um, Pachuco takes him over. It's almost like Ghost of Christmas Past shit because he takes him from the jail cell 
and and tells him follow me and the gel cell slowly starts to blend in with this house and then the next thing you know the house is there he takes him into his house and he's showing him like this is what was happening before all this this is this is a moment that you had with your family and and we get a little of a glimpse of what his family uh, life was you Mm -hmm. would have thought it would have been you know because he's this leader in this quote-unquote you know 38th street gang you would have thought he would have had a pretty broken domestic home no yeah pretty kind of remind me of my parents like you sure. know you got a tough ass dad and you know, who, but, who works. but like a, like but like a, obviously like a good dad right you know yeah he, he takes supportive he, yeah supports his family he loves his children he loves his wife you know Maybe he drinks too much too, and he boasts about his time in the Mexican Revolution. But he seems like a, like basically a good guy. Yeah, yeah, you know? not too bad. And there is the part where the mom's giving him giving him shit about him wearing the dra- the drabes or yep. drapes. You know, he's she's like, "Why you can't be wearing that?" You know, the there's boys getting arrested for dressing like that, and he's like, "Ah, they're only arresting the ones that look that that look gross or don't, don't look right." And he slowly starts to look toward his brother. <laughs> Because his brother looks horrible, he looks like a weird homeless person. And well, he's like he's like a, he's expropriated his father's jacket, right? Yes, because it's the only thing he's available to him, and it doesn't really look zoot suitish at all. No, um, it's way too it, big it, on him. It just looks like a men's jacket that's too large. Yeah, it's like if I went to the Goodwill and just tried on like an XXL or something. It's hilarious. Um, but yeah, Rudy does a great job, and there is that moment where Rudy gets in a fight because while. While Henry's out in in prison waiting for for the, uh, uh, it's not the retrial, but uh, I forget what they call it. They're on appeal. On appeal, yeah. They're waiting for the appeal, and and Bachuco tells him, "Hey, while you're here, man, there's a war going on in L.A. on the streets of L.A., and that's when they start touching on the riots that that Faustus was talking about, and you that you see Rudy get in that fight, and he switches to Bachuco, so." And maybe that was all in Henry's head, but I feel like whatever Pachu- El Pachuco is, uh, Edward James almost character, it kind of to me lives a part of him lives in a lot of these kids and in and in a lot of these kids that are going through all of this. Um, and I just think we're looking at Henry's perspective of it, uh, in my opinion. But um, but it is really interesting to see how he controls this whole story. And and there's moments where he's gone for a while, and even Henry's like, "Hey man, where you been? <laughs> where you been?" Because there is a part where they put Henry. Okay, he barely um, he 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 gets frustrated because he's lonely. He's there for two years, which is the movie can't really capture that, but they do a decent job um, of of capturing the frustration um, that all of us would be going through if we were in prison for 12 uh, for two years and he's building this uh kind of relationship and i don't know if you want to talk on that but the the kind of relationship that he's building with alice and and what she's trying to do for them mm-hmm. um and he I mean, gets a little frustrated well alice is alice is a political activist all right when yeah. she first meets henry in prison this movie has a lot of internal jokes or i don't know if i'm laughing at the wrong things occasionally but <laughs> You know, she introduced. She comes up and she introduces him in this visit in this visitors era, and she says, "You know, I'm I'm Alice. I guess the name they give her in the movie is Bloomfeld. Bloomfeld, uh, and I'm with the Congress of Industrial Organizations." And I thought, does Henry live? Does Henry know what the Congress of Industrial Organizations 
is. Fuck no. Because <laughs> <Hell laughs> no. I, you know, I, I felt like it must be like being in prison and there. Yeah, she says, I'm here to represent. I want you to let you know the working people are behind you. Um, and I thought, you know, it's supposed to be like, it must be like having someone come to you in prison and say, you know, I'm with the American Actuarial Society, and um, yeah. I just want to let you know the insurance industry is right behind you. Uh, it's sort of, but yeah, you know, so he obviously seems a little bit confused by this. Yeah, she approaches him uh, in the worst way you would approach an inner yep. city kid. Yep. If so someone she, approached me like that, I would have been like, I don't trust you. <laughs> right. And I don't think he trusts her either. No. And obviously, El Pachuco is not on her side. Um, and she goes on, she keeps explaining, you know, like, you're here because you've been railroaded. Um, and she you know, even mentions we, that they're that the press is calling the Pachuco movement a, a fascist. Yeah, she uh. says. She says. Um, <laughs> this is another one of those very funny moments. She says they're accusing you of sinarchismo. Um, and you know, what? <laughs> you know, Henry has no idea what this is, and he looks. El Pachuco is there, right? He, yeah. Because he's like this projection, visible only to his consciousness. <laughs> and what he says is. You're on your own for this one. I say. He's like, hey, what? he's a boss. I don't know. What the he he, does, he doesn't about. know what sinarchismo is either. <laughs> and I don't think sinarchismo is anything. I think it's no, probably just it's up. just something. It's something that the it's something that the Hearst Press would have made up, you know, oh, to, yeah. to scare white people with. You're you know, it's one, it's one of those concepts like Islamofascism or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, the Fox News phenomenon is a lot older than most people imagine. Um, and this this is an you know, this is an incident of it. She eventually does like by coming at him, I think in a more in a sort of more, a more human way, does win his trust, does yeah. get get him to participate in the process of, you know, uh, yeah, the, running the appeal. She works very very hard. You can tell that she's running, you know, working finger, finger to bone on his behalf and on behalf of his friends are in they're in San Quentin with him. Yes, um, and she starts the. That uh, uh, Sleepy Lagoon uh, Defense Committee, Defense Committee, and she sends him newsletters and is working her tail off. And like you said, we're, uh, I think even one of the, I think his name is Smiley. That's his mm-hmm. tag name, or that's his like nickname. And uh, he mentions like, hey, I don't want my wife going around door to door giving flyers and telling people about what's going on. Like that's not our customs. That's not the way we work. And she's like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Yep. But the way an activist works, that's part of the life is you're trying to get a grassroots movement going. And back then we didn't have social, they didn't have, I say we, they did have social media to spread the message. You had to go door by door, everybody old school Mormon style. <laughs> yeah. And you, and your, your letters were produced on a mimeograph machine. Oh. One of which, one of which we actually see in operation in the course of this movie. Yeah, Rudy I was thrilled. Was working his ass off with a bunch of ink on his face. <laughs> yeah, like I said, there's a lot in this movie that's that sort of humor, sort of laden in. Um, yeah, and sometimes in really weird spots too. Like there's a t- that part where you were mentioning the stylized fight with uh, the L.A. riots. There, there's a lot going on there. Uh, Bachuco is yelling at the at the reporter because you know the media is. Uh, Basically, there's, there's a character. He's he's actually he's almost an allegorical figure. Yes, right. He's like he's just labeled as the press. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> and, and he's horrible. Like you know, he's 
he, he he's the representation of, of what they were trying to do, which is use words like zoot suitors or pachucos instead of just saying Mexicans mm -hmm. um, and, and using those words to, 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 to target a, a, a whole group of people, basically, and, and make them look like there's something to fear. And Pachuco gives this whole thing, but it's funny when this really deep, meaningful part uh, conversation is going on, they actually cut to an old man in the audience falling asleep. Falling asleep. <laughs> I thought I was like, that's hilarious. Like that's some shit I would have done. <laughs> so kind of like this podcast today is a very serious movie, very serious topic. But I think there's there is definitely some comedy woven in that it, sometimes is kind of weird where they put it. But I still mm -hmm. had a good time with with some of the jokes. Some but, some of them still land. There's also a point where actually Pachuco breaks the fourth wall deliberately. Yes. Right? Where, like, you know, at some point when Daniel's getting really, really upset about something. Oh, that is a crazy moment. And he's just like, hey, calm down. Don't take the pinche play so seriously. <laughs> and then, like, you know, so people are laughing at you. And then you pan out into the audience. And you yeah. see the audience just looking back at him. It's this same big. It's a very, it's a curious moment. I think there is, there is a, there is critical writing about why this, things like this is, you know, are done. Um, which I guess I could address. I might try to address a little later on, but just to sort of get the continue with the earlier line, which is the relationship between Alice and Daniel, um, which is to say, Daniel eventually falls in love with her, um, yeah. and he writes he writes letters to her from prison, and this you know, she's kind. You can tell she's kind of very moved, but at the same time, can't reciprocate this. No. Uh, there's a there's a she, line, unfortunately, that yeah. you know she sees her job as a job, and a big part of that I, is connecting with people and, as as a calling. Really, I think might be even yeah. It's like when you when you said you know, it's interesting when you saw when I saw Alice McGrath actually interviewed the 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 real person on whom this character was based. She says the reason why I did the I do this is not because I just want to be helpful, but because this is what I am. You know, this is what constitutes me. These are my values. These are this is my morality. This is what makes my life worthwhile as a human being. Uh, and I think that that carries over into the the fictional character. Uh, exactly. That kind of reminds me of a teacher's mentality, like mm -hmm. the really good ones out there. Right. Because that, that is the mentality you have to have. It is a struggle. Um, and yeah, she she definitely brings that kind of energy to the stage. And she honestly, if y'all have never seen this movie, think April O'Neil. She would have been a fantastic April O'Neil for the Ninja Turtles if they had brought that in the 70s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she has that kind of dope-ass hair color. She's she's uh, redhead, ginger. Um, but I mean, her presence in, in the movie is so she can back up and be a part of the the scene when she needs to be and she can just completely take a scene when she needs to as well and there is a one big uh, moment where she has a pretty solid monologue where she goes from being incredibly hurt by henry because henry is believing pachuco about what her intentions are and her just seeing them as you're thinking about else this, but is, a Mexican. This, is, this is the monologue where she says i wish you could work for a couple months at the Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee. Yes, yes. And it's about you know how much shit she has to take to do the things that she's doing. Yep. I mean, she's still a woman trying to lead people in the 1940s. Everyone, it don't matter what color you were or anything like that, what your what race you were, um, it was tough. 
uh, to be. It's tough to be a woman now, so I can't imagine. <laughs> and she's Jewish. And she's Jewish. Uh, and and she's that. she at one point calls herself a communist. Yes. Uh, I don't know if that was true of the historical Alice McGrath, but it makes a certain amount of sense if you're working for the yeah. Congress of Industrial Maybe a Organizations. Demo- Democratic Socialist, at yeah. least. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and yeah, and and Bajuko kind of whispers in Henry's ear, like, "Hey, man, she's never going to think of you as a man. She's always going to see you as just a Mexican, you mm-hmm. know." And he's always. He's always, whenever Henry's about to believe in himself as a Henry, mm-hmm. Bachuco reminds him that that's not who you are. You know, that he, he always brings them down. And I think we've all had that friend in our lives. Um, and sometimes they're good to have around and sometimes they're not. And, um, and, there's some, and when it came to this, he was definitely that friend that you did want to have around. And yeah, I love her, her, um, her reaction when she, she wants him to write articles in the newsletter you know it'd be good to have a chicano voice in the newsletter to help uh garner more support obviously it's a great idea but and henry is definitely uh one of the most influential and most well-spoken and and um uh she obviously knows how to write really well yeah like he would be a great person to, to, to to put out there in the newsletter but henry doesn't want to have anything to do with it pachuco tells him not to do it but henry does tell her well, how about we write letters to each other? How about I start with that? How about I write you letters? And she's like, mm-hmm. okay, that sounds like a star. And they shake hands after she, you know, she finally gets him to settle in on it and trust her a little bit. But he ends up, yeah, falling for her. And uh, her reaction is kind of, it's sad because she's like, I've never had anyone write me love letters like this. You know, she's a tough, she's one of those tough women that I think would intimidate most men. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the 40s and she has this this Chicago guy in prison writing these love letters to her and she's like I can't write the I can't return those I can't reply to those letters basically mm-hmm. and Henry's disappointed and hurt by it mm-hmm. but she tells him like you said this is a calling this is this after I'm done with this after we win this I have another I have another job to go to after that you know and mm-hmm. then after that and after that she doesn't have time to stop for love and all that this is her mission and Henry understands, but not before he gives her a good uh, Henry yep. <laughs> Henry smooch. Yep. <laughs> and she is like, like whoa, like, damn. And we got the asshole guard getting, you're just ruining it, you know. For sure. <laughs> the guy's an asshole. Um, by the way, did I mention, uh, which was kind of blew my mind, we get a really good uh, early, early uh, showing of... Kurtwood Smith, uh, who is famous for playing Clarence Bodiger in RoboCop, and he is in this movie. It blew my mind. I was like, "Hey, there's fucking Curtis Bo- there's Clarence Bodiger in this movie, and he's all- obviously he plays a fucking cunt like in every other movie." <laughs> he's so good. He's so good in the little bits that he has. Yeah. Oh, like, oh my god, dude! There he is, Kurtwood Smith, the only Kurtwood. You're ever gonna meet. I think his mom wanted to call him Kurt, but then named him after some country singer or something who had Wood in the name, and she just threw it together instead of making it the middle name. Yeah, huh. like, I, yeah Kurt Wood. <laughs> That's his whole name. It's like and he, I guess he had to, had to learn how to fight when he was in grade school. Oh yeah, you had. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably why he's such a badass in every movie he's in. 
He plays an asshole sergeant that uh, is one of the guys that beats up Henry in the initial interrogation that they bring right. him in where he protects all of his guys and doesn't say anything. So, yep. uh, yeah, it's a rough scene, too. And as El Pachuco tells him after the scene, you know, predicting the future, he says, well, you're, you're going to get it. You don't deserve it, but you're going to get it anyway. Yep. The tough, yeah, that's one of those tough scenes where he freezes time right before they're about to just basically beat the shit out of Henry and that he says that line that is, it's wrong. And then he snaps his fingers and then you just hear Henry just getting destroyed. He goes through a lot in this whole movie, just goes through a whole, whole bunch. Um, takes a lot of hits, not only in the prison system, but in real life, in uh, his, uh, you know, his life outside of the prison as well. Um, when they're talking about what happened with everything, um, tell me about who do you think was? I'm curious about you because I have mine in mind. Who okay. do you think is the weakest in this movie as an as an actor? Oh um, gosh, because <laughs> <laughs> it's actually like a lot of strong performances at the at the top. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm curious about your opinion, and maybe you feel like they all did great. <laughs> kind of. Um, I suppose that... You know, I, I don't want to pick on, on the actress Rose Portillo who, does, who plays the part of Della. Yes, that's But she's, why, a, that's but she's a bit of a wilting violet here uh, <laughs> in a lot of these scenes, I guess. Maybe that's just because the part is underwritten, um, but that might be it. That's uh, what I don't I feel thinking. like a good person for saying it, but that's kind of how I felt. No, it's fine. I, I feel the same way. I think a lot of the scenes with her in them are kind of not great. And and you're right. Maybe some of it has to do with there wasn't a lot of writing. Maybe they just, you know, she took an approach that just doesn't quite work. I mean, they, I, I, I have, I've got the copy of the, the play uh, that this was based on somewhere. I only got to go through it quickly, but I got the sense that it was a little more male-centric there, and that women were written in to some extent uh, because they were criticized for that. And that might be might be what's going on here. Uh. I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, I think she's probably a fine actress, but I think that the, the part might not really have worked as well as it should have. What, one of the roughest uh, lines that she has for me personally is when... So he, um, Henry takes her out, and and it's kind of a big deal that they're going out because he's um, so she is the daughter of uh, one of uh, one of Henry's dad's compadres, which is like a you know a close friend, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's really important. And she's also a little younger; she's like seventeen going on to eighteen, and Henry's obviously a little bit over eighteen. He looks like he's maybe nineteen, <clears throat> and. Even in that case, it's still a big deal, you know. Um, you need to treat that very, uh, as very gently as possible. And the dad tells him, like, hey, don't be all creeper, man. Don't be fucking up. And you're going to ruin my friendship. Like, me and this guy, we drink tequila at the bar. You know, I want you to fucking that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's basically what he tells him. And Henry takes her out, and they're going on a little date. He's got his dope-ass car. He takes her to, like, one of those classic make-out places, right? Where right. This, this is the Sleepy Lagoon. Sleepy Lagoon. He and has a great car, by the way. Oh, his car is so dope. It, yeah. it, it kind of reminds you of the... It's like a 1938 Chrysler or something like oh, that. It's so like, gorgeous. Or Chevy. It's, it's in really great condition. It's a car Mr. Miyagi would have owned. Yes. And... <laughs> 
Hey, I'm Abby, the host of Portal 8 Podcast, a pop culture and Bachelor franchise recap show, where we also dive in to mysterious topics like ghosts, aliens, and anything paranormal. Have you been sucked in through the Bachelor franchise portal and can't escape? I have too. Tune in every Tuesday for my take on the latest in pop culture news, Bachelor Nation tea, and of course, recaps. Or maybe you're more into the spooky stuff. Join me and my guests every Thursday as we chat all things paranormal. From ghosts to cryptids to astrology and aliens, we cover it all. You can find the show on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow us on Instagram at Portal Podcasts and Twitter at Portal 8 Podcast to stay in the loop. We can't wait for you to join us through the portal. And, and so they're talking and he's making out with her and then she wants to go a little further and he's like, no, 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 I can't do it. I can't do it. And she's kind of like, well, you probably had Bertha, who was his ex-girlfriend, who was a little bit more promiscuous. You probably had her before in this area too. A little. You know? <laughs> and he's like, no, no, it's not like that. It's not like that. And then Della walks toward the car and she goes, oh, you must really think I'm square. <laughs> it's like, oh, gosh. Let's give that one more time, Della. Let's one more time. Let's just give that one more take. <laughs> but uh, she's, you know, she's supposed to be the innocent, um, you know, kind of get just barely kind of entering this street world, and so she does supposed to come out. She is supposed to come across kind of cheesy and square. So maybe it works. I don't know. But there are some scenes, especially the court scenes with her. Where I'm like, Eesh. but also the court scenes in general are kind of rough to me. I don't know about you, but I had trouble, especially with the lawyer, uh, the opposing lawyer. I thought George, um, the guy that plays George Shearer. Charles Aidman? Yes. Like, what, a, what a great name for the guy who plays the defense attorney, Aidman. Yeah, Aidman. That dude did fucking great. I love him. He has the face of a guy that drinks two black coffees in the morning and four at night. Like, just an amazing looking face. Like, just exhausted from fighting. Right. That's a classic kind of old movie character actor face. Oh, yes, man. Yeah, yeah. And he's had he has a history with Hollywood, and he's been in a bunch of stuff as well. Um but yeah, I thought he did a, a great job coming in, especially that initial scene where he, uh, the guys are already, you know, waiting and for trial, mm-hmm. and he comes in and he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm here, I'm gonna be your lawyer," and they're not giving him any respect. They don't trust him. He's just the man, you know. They're, they took his suitcase. They take his little suit uh, or briefcase. They start throwing it around, and he can't get it. <laughs> it's like, oh, poor George. And he eventually gets them to turn around and actually trust him after a while. They're like, oh, wait, this guy actually wants to fight for us, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, unfortunately, he and he fights for them for real. Like, he antagonizes the judge because the judge is being a real prick the whole fucking movie because he's right. a racist piece of shit. And he, he antagonizes the judge. And unfortunately, as part of that, they end up sending uh, uh, Della to juvenile. Right, uh, which is crazy. She's like the nicest girl in the whole neighborhood. <laughs> but but, but which actually a version of this actually happened in real life too. Uh-huh. It's yeah. so messed up, man. So that the the judge um, also is great. Circus of a trial. Oh my god, it it, it blows my mind. You know, I, I think to a lot of people, the 1940s is a long time ago, but it's really not that long ago, and it's crazy to think that they were basically trying to. They were like, if we can't throw them on the other side of the border, let's throw them in prison and get them off the streets. And they were mm-hmm. trying to do it in droves. 
Right. Well, the, the, in the in the real life trial, there were seventeen defendants. Seventeen. That's insane. And you know what a what a travesty because you cannot confer with with defense counsel when you have seventeen um, yeah. defendants. Uh, you cannot reasonably expect a jury to differentiate among seventeen defendants. So I mean, in some sense, the real the, the thing that we see depicted on screen is. You know, certainly contrary to any known notion of due process, but the real life thing was even worse. Yeah, I can't imagine um, being in that courtroom as the lawyer trying to defend these these kids and hearing uh, what is supposed to be an expert witness mention that they're but they're only the human sacrifice or yes, whatever, because right? Because of yeah. their their ancestral roots of you know being Aztecs and human sacrifice, they are preordained to killing. So we should put them in prison, even though there are no there's no hard evidence that but they did it. What does he say? Like the the the, the Anglo fights with his fists. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He sometimes kicks, but that is regarded as bad form. <laughs> but the but the, but the Pachuco wants to fight with his knife. Um, oh my god! Like it, I found it, it's like it, you. And yet it, something like that actually happened too. So I mean, yeah, it's just absolutely appalling and insane that that was going on at the time. And you know they're putting these kids who they're basically systematically uneducated in this whole process uneducated in, in what is all going on around them and that is one thing i can speak to growing up in my neighborhood in the south side of san antonio you are in like this bubble mm -hmm. um and, and and that's all you know and a lot of times it's really a what a i don't know a 10 to 20 block radius of your neighborhood that is what you know those are the streets you walk that is where you that that is where you can feel safe there's parts of town you can't go to there's parts of there's certain colors you can't wear there's certain things you can't wear and you learn those things and that's all that matters you don't learn about any of the things that are like any of i didn't know about council members until i was well into college mm -hmm. i had no idea that there were council members that council, as in like City um, like assembly members. members yeah city council members that affect what happens in my neighborhood i had mm -hmm. no idea about any of that and i think nowadays i think more um uh, i always say that wrong i'm not sure if it's nowadays or nowadays but either way i'm not i think more more kids are figuring that out much sooner but growing up in that bubble it is very difficult to learn some of those things and that's the situation these guys are in and this is the 1940s a lot of their parents or for you know a lot of times they're first generation or they're just coming in and they're trying to learn this culture and all of a sudden you're in a freaking in a in a courtroom and you have all this going on like i can't imagine uh, how difficult that must have been for them back then you just automatically targeted and you haven't done anything yet and this movie captures it well and i think they try to find a way to i don't want to say I think what the movie does a great job is is they don't romanticize it at all, really. Um, but I do think they try to create an entertaining form of it. And and Bachuco does sort of do a disclaimer in the beginning, right? He sort of says, this is uh, kind of, uh, there's going to be some supernatural shit in this. <laughs> this isn't necessarily, don't take this as like, you know, concrete words here. You know, we're telling a story here. This is, there's a mixture of things. And it's not necessarily going to be everything that exactly happened. We're we're also trying to entertain you. So, um, and I think he does a good job with that. 
in that opening scene he's awesome uh he it, that i think that's after the whole song that very initial song that they have mm-hmm. so what what did you think of the uh, the approach of you know where the basically the movie starts where people are like they're going to the play mm-hmm. they're going to the stage uh, the playhouse and i love the scene where they're they Another give, beautifully they give, prever- preserved 1938 chevy gorgeous and they yep. give the valet the keys to the car they're like hey man take it slow take it slow he's like yes sir and he takes off like oh, like, hey, what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> yes i would be kind of upset too if i were that oh hell yeah man. those guys are gentle you gotta treat them gently yeah but what did you think of that approach of, of taking it would you have would you have wanted to do see something different i can't say i want to see something different and i guess here is here is kind of why I think that there is actually something something deeper going on here than just well we are normally playwrights and so we're going to do it that way. Mm-hmm. There is um and some people have written some critics have written about this. I mean, not like you know TV critics like Leonard Maltin who think it's a distraction. And what the fuck does he know? This is um it's more an issue of um. What might be going on here is you have to understand these are political activists who are creating the movie. In particular, Luis and his brother Daniel start off using theater uh, in the in the context of 1965 labor and Chicano activism, and they must have at that time, I think, been reading Bertolt Brecht, who's a German playwright from a, gen- a couple generations before, uh, who is also a political activist who wants to use theater to raise you know, consciousness of the injustices of the world. And Beck had an idea of based on what he calls, um, it's what, there is this untranslatable term in German, uh, um, I mean, people have endless arguments about what it, not so much about what it means as how to translate it. It, mean, it means something roughly like making strange effect uh, or in, perhaps a, an alienation effect, a foreignness effect, uh, and the objective, it, the idea behind it in theater is that you're trying to get the audience not to sink into just a story about characters, but to sort of break their empathy with the characters enough to reflect on the larger situation that they're in and the larger forces behind what, you know, what they're living through. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, might be the reason why they took this approach. Uh why we have a lot of things going on in the audience in the, in the course of the thing, like the, the breaking of the fourth wall, mm-hmm. like that, that, that incredibly funny moment where El Pachuco breaks the fourth wall and says, Hey, don't take the play so seriously. Yeah. Uh, or why we have people coming into the audience and looking, you know, occasionally we pan into the audience and why scenes in this movie take place in the audience, like the, the chasing down of El Pachuco uh, and the carrying him back to the stage in an interestingly cruciform posture, by the way, I think that should be That's noted. Um, and you know why? Why it spells out not just beyond the audience, but actually out to the snack bar at one point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is more that's really breaking the fourth wall yeah. <laughs> and it's another one of those oddly funny moments but one which i think may have a serious purpose um which is again to try to alienate people a little bit from the story why would they want to do that well think about how this this could actually have been, how, how this could sort of like devolve right you could see this as just a story about you know this character one an innocent man 
who's wrongfully accused of a crime he doesn't commit and is punished for it, and he's in love with a woman who's on the outside, who's appropriate for him in many ways, and she loves him, but then there's a third leg of the triangle, which is another woman who comes in who heroically fights for his salvation, and then when he gets out, he has to be disappointed about the fact that, you know, he can't, that, you know, this other woman didn't reciprocate his affections, but there's the consolation uh, of, you know, the, the, the constant faithful outside woman, girl he knew from the neighborhood, right? Yes. Well, that could be that story, or it could be a story set in medieval Europe, or it could be a story set out in space in some kind of science fiction setting, or, you know, it could be set in, you know, wherever you want to put it, it could be like set in New York high society. Um, we would get, we would all get, we would just get caught up in the emotions and the lives of the characters, and we wouldn't be thinking about the larger kind of world in which they live, in which their li their lives are being driven by these forces of injustice and exploitation uh, that are the, the larger, probably in some ways, maybe the more important story. Now, whether, this whole, whether the whole story I've told you makes sense or not, you know, is, is for other people to judge. But I do respect it as an artistic choice. Uh, and I don't think I would do it differently if I, if I had the sort of the objectives of the people I think who wrote this, who wrote this movie, who made this movie have, as I think they have. That's kind of a long-winded answer. But yeah, it's a way of saying, no, I wouldn't have done it differently, and I kind of like the way they did it. I would have done it differently. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> I, I, I won't even make you try to pronounce the word effect. No, don't make me pronounce uh, that. <laughs> there's nobody I hate that much. Um, no, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I, I do think there are elements of the approach that they took of using all the stage elements and and, and 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 taking it that way i think there's a lot that works specifically i really think the musical numbers work really well uh taking it this direction uh i think the stage lends itself to musical numbers obviously um that's where it was given birth to uh on stage and and then and sometimes in in full production films where they're on location or maybe they're on a set somewhere else it kind of has that feel anyway so it, it does work on stage but there's some parts especially the what's supposed to be action scenes in this movie uh the grittiness um the stage uh angle to me takes a little bit away from that you know especially since i actually you know, uh, I'm not some super badass Chicano guy that grew, you know, like I am, I was probably one of the nerdiest sons of bitches growing up in my neighborhood, but even I ran from cops, even I got dirty, even I went, had to go climb fences and get away from them, um, in find ways to get home and go through the neighborhood and, and, you know, while at the same time there's stray pit bulls trying to fucking bite me because there was big, a lot of big pit bull fighting in our neighborhood. You know, there's a lot of that and there's, there's something gritty about that and, when, and you just can't capture that on stage. You just can't. Um, when you're not in the neighborhood, when you're, when you're not, Catch, capturing the essence of of where they're coming from i would have loved to have shots of their neighborhood i would have loved to have shots of boyle heights especially back then i think it would have been 
amazing to be able to capture that. There's parts of Boyle Heights that you could probably still make look like the 1940s because I'm sure there's some elements that are there, you know, that haven't been uh, uh, completely gentrified. Um, and the same for my neighborhood. There's parts where you could go and you wouldn't be able to tell if it's the 1950s or, you know, now. Um, so... I, there's a little bit of me that would love to see the story told in a slightly different way and getting away from the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there are parts, and maybe that's what made the movie not as digestible or um, consumable, I mean, for, for people. Um, and that's maybe why it doesn't have the ratings that it should have. But I think it was super, very well written in some, some uh, for the majority of it. And I think it was very well directed. Um, I would have. I would love to see this actually on stage. I think it just is better on stage, um, mm-hmm. but it's still so good. Uh, the music is great and everything. But yeah, I mean that's my opinion on it. I, I would love to. Uh, I would at least like to see it done in a slight, in a different way. Um, just out of just curiosity, to be honest. <laughs> All right. So look, if you're going to remake this movie in 2020, how would you cast it? Oh shit. I- <laughs> You didn't expect that one, did you? I would make Edward James almost the dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. He's he's probably aged into that. Yeah, he's probably aged into that. Um, you know, man, I would. There were so many good young Chicano actors out there. Now, I think mm-hmm. uh, I would definitely hire some a mixture of L.A. San Antonio San Antonio actors uh, into the mix, but. I, I, I would I would definitely take a more bare bones approach to it. I just don't know who I would put in there. Do you have any idea what you would uh, how um, you would? Unfortunately, no. But it wasn't my idea to remake it. So. <laughs> I hadn't thought that far into it, Faustus. But it might be something I might think about because that would be. Oh, you know what? I'll definitely have that guy, the uh, Pedro from uh, D- Napoleon Dynamite. I'd throw him in there somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> in the background doing some dancing shit, wearing a zoot suit. But uh, I would like to see a lot of different. Um, I think it would be nice to refresh it in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, as, as we, did with, we refreshed the cover art for this one, so. Yes. Uh, you know, I, that is the one thing that this movie captures very well is the stylistic approach of what zoot suit the whole energy the whole what what it exudes uh the the of wearing a zoot suit mm-hmm. all of them captured perfectly well but ex- especially edward james almost like when you see him in that zoot suit you kind of want to wear one and you want to lean back and stick your foot out you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like he looks amazing he looks oh. amazing but the costumers must have really worked very hard Oh yeah, to get these to work well. Yeah. I mean, it helps that you have Edward James almost, who's who's he's so sleek. He's built for. It. He's really built for it. Yes, he is absolutely built for it, and I think that's why they initially hired him for the play in the first place. And it is one of his his uh, very first real jobs in acting, right? Uh, from what I read about his history, um, this was one of the first ones where he was actually given an opportunity to take on a pretty major job. And you would have thought he had been doing this for years and years if you saw him. Um, you know, if you look at him in this movie, you would think he was. This was his fifth or sixth major film. Yep. And he really had not had much going behind this. <laughs> which is I mean, I'm looking up his history, and I guess you're kind of right. I thought he must have done a lot of stuff before this, but you know, like his his first next major role, he's Detective Gaff at Blade Runner. I didn't know that, or I've forgotten yeah. that. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> yeah, it, this sort of uh, uh, lifted his career to new heights, and then once he gets Miami Vice, where he um, 
where I read, I didn't know this, but it does make sense because I remember thinking his character was so different uh, than anyone else in Miami Vice. He are he basically battled to have creative control over his character in Miami Vice, mm -hmm. and they finally came up with a deal that would work. And so everything he wears, which is basically the same little skinny black tie and a suit, he looks like a men in black. And his whole direction of character, which is these like he's super serious. He gives these long stares, has long pauses. They couldn't tell him to do something different. He had complete control over how he would say, <laughs> how he would express every line of that show. It's amazing. I just love that he's that stubborn. That he's that like I know what I want. I know what this character needs. Let me do it the way I want to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he's i mean when you let him do what he wants to do it looks like he is able to find the right touch to give his characters uh because yeah him as el pachuco he just steals the show uh, you could tell looking at all the characters in this movie that he was the one that was probably going to make the biggest overall splash career-wise and is still doing it to this day it's just amazing to me He's captivating. <laughs> he really is just see. an incredible kind of charisma <laughs> in the way he gets. When he first comes onto the stage and, and speaks, you know, his very first lines, um, like they could, you could easily see an actor like bungling them or making them sound corny. Um, I think that in the the first lines, what does he say? Oh, after, that when he after the after that first musical number after the he, first musical he number he comes open out open a newspaper. There's like the the stage with, is a, with a switchblade. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, right. The line, ladies and gentlemen, the what the, the what is it? The play you're about to see is a construct of fact and fantasy. Yes, but relax, weigh the facts, enjoy the pretense. Our pachuco realities will only make sense if you grasp the stylization. Yes. And at this point, everyone is riveted, right? Oh, yeah, man. Like, it's like, it was the secret fantasy of every bato, in or out of the pachucada, to put on the zoot suit and play the myth. Mastucote que la chingada, which is one of those phrases I had to go look up because I don't know what it I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, since I, this is a family program, I won't talk. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, this is a real family program where I said cunt earlier. <laughs> what I really like about the the calo uh, is that a lot of these words that they say, depending on the situation or how you're saying it, it can mean something slightly different. And I just like the flexibility of it all. Um, mm -hmm. Me and the, me and my friends love the slang, and we we would work it in all the time naturally. Just because we heard our, you know, we heard our, we heard our older brother say it, we heard our cousin say it, and we would work it into our language. And I actually grew up in a more predominantly English-speaking uh, neighborhood, considering it's San Antonio. There's, you know, there's plenty of Spanish speakers, obviously, but um, it's something that I think um, definitely separates San Antonio and L.A. Is that I think in L.A. they they held on to a lot more of the heritage and the culture of Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, there's way more flow to me. There's well, here's what I've heard from outsiders is that 
in LA there are certain parts of LA where you probably need to approach in Spanish and there's parts in San Antonio and, and in San Antonio you should be okay mostly everybody knows English mm -hmm. and there's and then there's people that are bilingual and know Spanish because they grew up with it because San Antonio is just a little bit more I guess some people would say whitewash but I think they're just more Anglo influence and there's more people speaking English in in San Antonio I grew up having to learn English or else you'd get in trouble if you spoke Spanish back in the day but now finally finally they're embracing learning Spanish it's part of the culture there like for God's sakes let these kids speak Spanish so now you got all kids from all races and ethnicities learning Spanish through dual language programs in schools that's just a little something I wanted to pop in there because I feel like that's important. I think kids should know know more languages. I think learning both through dual language programs in elementary is the way to do it. It's best to learn it when you're little. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and you grasp it as you get. But then there's things like this, like this slang stuff. You're not going to be taught that in Spanish class. No. Más chucote que la chingada is not going to be something they're going to teach you. Uh, you learn that in the in your hood like that's that's just where you learn you hear it from other people and you say it and uh there is just something about this movie man that i still absolutely loved it and um i was gonna do a quick impression but you kind of did it for me uh I, w I was gonna do a little bit of that that part with no. edward james almost uh and i feel like i kind of did it already so i may right. maybe i'll throw another one in later i don't sure. know sure do you want to talk about how the movie ends Oh, yes, yes, because yes, it's yes. A, it's a weirdly ambiguous and interesting ending. Give us a little bit of that. Give us a little bit of that, Faustus. Basically, we come out, it's there is the parade of the of Henry and his friends. They win their appeal. And so they come out of prison. You see them slow walking out of prison. And you know, we notice one thing is that Henry is actually now wearing, El, he's actually wearing El Pachuca Zoot Suit. Yes. Uh, which very is symbolic. In, very interesting and very symbolic. Uh, they come out, there's this great celebration outside as everyone reunites with their families. Yeah. And they're paraded out, by the way. There's like an honor guard almost um, of various sort of military personnel, including and Rudy. In there. Yeah. Uh, who's, wearing a, who's wearing a U.S. Army uniform and carrying what looks like a giant filero. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a giant switchblade. Yeah. Um, in places where a soldier would normally be carrying a rifle. Curious choice, that, but okay. Um, <laughs> he opens the blade and then, then shoulders it as if he's rifle saluting. Um, and then he looks up, Henry looks up, and it's El Pachuco. He has returned. And he's, and he's in a solid, brilliant white zoot suit. Yes. Uh, it's like Gandalf a, coming back or something. Yeah, he looks and, fucking amazing. <laughs> and, you know, he says, you know, there's this, there's this conclusion. He says, and now you are free. And that would be the way we end the play. Applause. There's like a, a smattering of applause. And then he snaps his fingers. And he says, but real life isn't that way. And then let's see how it may have been. And by the way, when he snaps his fingers, his, his white zoot suit is now replaced back with the the red and the black the and that black are the, classic. The, that has been the, the the sort of symbolic colors he's worn throughout the the movie, and Henry is back in white, uh, and then we get the press, <laughs> um, this and allegorical just, figure. Yeah, he just craps all over because everyone has their own interpret. Basically, it's everyone has their own interpretation of the life of Henry. Henry, uh, I want to say Reina was it Reina? Reina. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. Reina. <laughs> and it's like 
Henry Rayner went back to prison in 1947 for robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. While incarcerated, he killed another inmate, and he wasn't released until 1955 when he got into hard drugs. He died from the trauma of his life in 1972. And then he's the uh, the El Patuco interrupts, right? Yep. That's the way you see it, I say. But there's other ways to end this story. Then we get different endings of the story from different characters from their perspectives. Rudy's is Henry Rayner went to Korea in 1950. He was shipped across in a destroyer and defended the 38th parallel until he was killed at Incheon in 1952, being posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And he snaps a salute. Yep. Then we get Alice. She's sitting behind a desk, smoking. <laughs> She's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> she makes smoking look cool. <laughs> and she says, Henry Rayner married Della, and that Della is his, the girlfriend he's had throughout the whole thing, in 1948. They still live in Los Angeles where they have five kids. Three of them are now going to the university, speaking Pachuco slang and calling themselves Chicanos. Um, which, by the that. way, it's an interesting thing because that has come up before. You remember what um, Henry's father says about the term yes. Chicano? Yes. Right? In the 40s, I guess it wasn't as accepted as a term. Right. He said he thought that's, just, you know, that's like a garbage term, don't use it. Yes. Um, and then yeah. everyone, yep. And I always then, considered myself one, um, right? Yeah. By the time I was in college, and I and I and I and I started learning more about you know my culture and my you know my heritage, I straight up decided if somebody asked me what I am, I <clears> just <throat> always say I'm a Chicano. Like mm-hmm. I just feel like that's the truest form of who I am. Right. And everyone has their own representation of what they feel like they should be considered, and that's just my representation. But it wasn't interesting to see that scene there with the dad. Well, again, again, you always have to you have sort of clashes between sort of respectability and pride. Yep. Uh, which is always a tension that's going to exist. And it's probably going to span generations. It's probably going to map on generations as well. Exactly. Um, which is why, you know, someone like Henry's father would be, see Chicano as, as a bad word. Uh, and other people take it as a badge of honor or at least as, as yeah. a badge of their identity. And for his dad, it's because he fought in the, you know, like to him, he's a Mexican at heart. But as a Chicano, it's really weird because you're not you're not American enough for for true blood Americans, and you're not Mexican enough for Mexicanos in Mexico. It's really awkward and weird sometimes. You know, I've ran into people that have, you know, you know, called me a coconut or something like that because they don't feel like I'm Mexican enough for them. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, I can't go to the the most American place in the world and then not look at me as something slightly different. So yeah, so it is an interesting uh, place to be in the world when you're when you're growing up in in the United States uh, that has you know having some sort of uh, uh, Mexican heritage. So yeah, so yeah, so when I learned about Chicano, I was, I was like, yeah, that's that's exactly what I am. <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense, but it is, and I think actually Edward James almost himself says a line kind of like that in the movie Salina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, the, the the way this movie ends is uh, it's so interesting. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you had more to go with. I love the way it ends. I love the way they close it out like this. Legendary. Everyone gives their gives their perspective, you yeah. know. So different characters, like you know. You know, one says George the defense attorney says Henry Rayner born leader and the judge says Henry Rayner zoot suitor um, 
Bertha, who's his sister, says, you know, Henry Reyna, you know, my brother. And the man she's dancing with, who's like, I guess, the Oki guy, whose name I've forgotten, but who the one with the, the white guy with a Pachuco identity, says, yes. Henry Reyna, my friend. And then his parent says, Henry, um, Henry our son. Our son. Which makes and me kind of want to cry. It closed, yeah. That, <laughs> it's it's odd. It is so simple. Yet, uh, yeah, it's a... It's a it's emotional it's powerful, part of the movie. It's a powerful yeah, moment. It's very and, powerful. Uh, you know, then you know we have Della Henry Reyna, my love, and then it's closed, of course, by the El Pachuco. It says Henry Reyna, El Pachuco, the, yeah. and the legend. And as it comes, it closing in on Daniel Reyna. So that's a that's an amazing ending. The ending is worth it. Um, and I remember feeling like when, when I was about an hour and a half in, I was like, okay, come on, guys, let's wrap this up. But then when I get to that part, I'm like, oh, that was worth the wait. <laughs> that was that was an amazing, amazing ending. And, you know, it goes to show that he's this, you know, he has a, uh, there's something that he's left, that this influence that he's left with so, so many people. That's why it was so important to fight for that life that he had. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there were so many people that cared about him. Um, yeah, I love the ending of that movie. And as you know, Faustus, uh, at the end of all my episodes, I do rate these films, and I do rate them by my favorite mustaches. So uh, they have the full Fu Manchu recommendation, excuse me, and we also have the um, walrus mustache that's pretty damn good. We got the horseshoe mustache, which is, eh, you know, kind of a recommend. And then you got the Hitler mustache, which is a piece of shit burning hell. Right. How would you? Uh, uh, this this is this has got to be a full fubanchu. This is just <laughs> this this thing is a cultural landmark. It's a remarkable achievement. Yeah, you know, I, I can't believe I haven't seen it until now, but now I have. Oh, so I didn't know that you hadn't seen it until yeah. now. I mean, I you know I've been like I've watched it a couple it. times since December just to get familiar, and I hit the books to try to understand what was going on. But yeah, no, this is a. Uh, I, I basically I basically took it on I took it on recommendation for two reasons. Uh, one is that it had Edward James Olmos in it. Of course, that's usually pretty much enough. <laughs> uh, and then also because I had actually heard of the Zoot Suit riots, they were an interesting. I guess I've sort of often had an interest in the inability of Angelinos to get along with each other, and uh, so this is you know it was a historically interesting subject, and I said okay, well exactly. this is this has got to be. Uh, and I picked it up, and I'm yeah, I'm really glad I did. I'm glad you recommended it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I um, I'm glad I recommended it. I I had no idea going into this how meaningful this movie was going to be to me and, and to the show itself. I mean, this is probably one of the most important films I've covered in this crazy, stupid comedy movie podcast that I have, and to be able to bring you on here to talk about it um, is is even make just makes it an even better experience to be honest but yes I obviously give this the full Fu Manchu recommendation yes there are elements to it that warrant my uh, favorite thing but in overall the overall experience of watching this movie to me is so much more important for any person that cares about movie, that that cares about film, that cares about movies, that cares about history, I think it's just really good to take this in and, and to check this movie out. It's definitely worth um, watching and, and giving it a meaningful watch because, man, I just absolutely enjoyed it. And the music alone is worth it. Like, I can't wait to get this soundtrack. I loved it. And, uh, yeah, man, so th- I just want to thank you so much for, for, for coming on board uh, once again, 
and and tackling a way different movie than Cannonball Run. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, the, the sort of the amount of research was sort of larger for this one. <laughs> I really put you to work for this one, Faustus. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. I learned a lot, so you know, worth it. <laughs> and I will say to everyone: so Faustus uh, uh, works with this amazing, amazing illustrator, um, and and he can talk a little bit about what he what he does uh, as, as a fantastic skill that he has uh, in writing. And he works with this amazing illustrator. Her name is uh, Lucy, a.k.a. Lufi Deles. Uh, she is an illustrator out of Brazil. And uh, she's also worked for DC Comics, FTD, Adult Swim, ZZ Comics, like just, just to name a few. And she actually did provide some artwork that we will be sharing on social media. Maybe you've already seen it. And I just want to put that here in the podcast as well. I'm going to also um, credit her as well in my post. But I wanted to mention that here too. She is amazing. And I might even consider um, working with her for possibly uh, one of the first Mustachio Podcastio t-shirt designs. I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to reach out to her and see what happens. <laughs> But uh, thank you, Faustus, for even uh, being able to bring her uh, her skills and talent to the to the show. That's amazing, man. Well, so she's always a lot of fun to work with, and uh, we had we had especially a good time with this one trying to figure out you know how to how to do uh, how to update sort of the art that goes along with this particular movie. Uh, and yeah. there's one little there's like a little Easter egg within the illustration uh, that relates back to the uh, earlier illustrations done for this, and we'll see if anyone finds it. Uh, nice. So, and she can be found at uh, lucyfidelis.com.br. So that's Lucy F I D E as an elephant L I S dot com dot B as in bear R. So yeah, definitely check out her work. She has all her uh, social media platform, all her social media links there as well. So Faustus, do you have anything uh, to promote on the show or anything you'd like to mention? Any shows you've been on? Uh, well, you know, as usual, uh, let's see. <laughs> I, um, as many of your listeners are probably aware, because I go on and on about it, I'm the proprietor uh, of a website called eroticmanscience.com. And I've been publishing comics and other artwork over there for almost a decade now. Wow. Uh, stuff has been appearing at a rate of roughly one new comics page or illustration a day for most of that period. So there's quite a lot of it by now. Wow. Um, and I say in my little Twitter bio that I like to write the movies which I wish I could see, but which I'm pretty sure will never be made. Um, <laughs> and my publication project currently over there implements that desire. Earlier during this pandemic, uh, when I was sitting at home wondering what I would do with myself, I wrote... Uh, an entire screenplay for a movie called Auto Icon, uh, which deals with some disturbing stuff having to do with the point of life, the meaning of death, what sacrifices we're prepared to contemplate for human well-being, you know, a philosophical work. Um, also, it has a lot of stuff that you would only expect to see in hentai. Uh, I've teamed up with one of my <laughs> comics artists to produce a series of more than 250 so-called storyboards for the movie, and I'm publishing them along with associated screenplay material day by day. Uh, along with some associated art by other artists. Um, this work and everything else I've done, all the erotic or erotic sci-fi I've written, it's all for free. My only caveat with respect to it is it's adult-only stuff, so if you're not an adult, uh, or if you don't like the sort of things that are labeled as only for adults, you might want to give it a pass. Otherwise, come and check it out. Uh, yes. Aside from that, you can always follow me on Twitter at erotic, at erotic Mad Sci, where I'm busy republishing artwork, making occasional snarky remarks. Uh, you can contact me through my website or DM me on Twitter. And if you're so bold to send me a postal address, I'll send you some swag in return, or at least a postcard. Cheers. 
Yes, uh, Faustus uh, on Twitter, he often titillates me, literally, uh, with some of the posts <laughs> that he has going up on there. Uh, cr crazy talented. I love the work. He sent me some of those work, uh, some of that work. So yes, if you do give his ad, give you give him your address. He is not joking. He will send you some amazing work. Absolutely love it. But yes, uh, Faustus, thank you for joining me today. I um, and as you know, as all the listeners know, you can find the show on. Instagram at Mustachio Podcastio. You can find it on Twitter and Podcastio. And also, don't forget, you can e email the show if you have any suggestions. Any if you have a movie that you would like me and Faustus to cover in the future. If you have any questions or any type of things you want me to bring up in the upcoming episodes, email me at mustachioedpodcastio at gmail .com. Thank y'all so much for joining us. And until uh, next time, uh, grow your mustache out. Later.